Hey guys, welcome back to This Week on the Alt-Right. Today, um, if you could just wave for me as I say your name, we have Brie Fauché. Um, we've got Mark Collat. And we have uh, Steve Franson. So hopefully you could see that. Maybe the, the waving doesn't work so well because obviously you don't show up on the screen. Um, but I think hopefully you're all familiar. All of the links are below in the description if you want to check them out anytime. Um, today we're talking about the usual kind of stuff, of course. Um, Mark's been collecting a list, so I'm going to throw it over to Mark. What is the first topic um, we're going to talk about today? Hello everyone, it's great to be back. And as usual, I'll be taking everyone's questions. So all those in the chat, all those watching, please make sure you send your questions in and as usual, towards the end of the show, we'll be answering them. Now, the thing that we're obviously leading with today is, and I hope you've all seen it, is the pictures of this demonic or satanic drag queen who was invited to the Michelle Obama public library to read to children. Now, I'm really almost lost for words because this creature is such an abhorrent state and you really wouldn't want grown adults to be around it, let alone children. But this is the face of what liberals want to subject our children to. And it really is horrific to see kids that are really no, no older than toddlers sat staring at this creature that has five what look like blooded horns growing out of its head. It's covered in tattoos. It's obviously a man dressed as a woman, but it's not really a woman. It's some kind of satanic beast. And this is being done in a public library and kids are being indoctrinated with this filth. Now we've spoke before about the sexual indoctrination of children, which for me is as if not more worrying than the multicultural indoctrination because at least that can be undone once people's heads have been messed up and they're on the wrong sexual track that seems to last with them for life and that deviancy seems to affect every facet of their life and for me this is an extension of it and when people talk about the slippery slope i I really like to call it not the slippery slope, but it's like a snowball rolling down a hill. It doesn't just advance in one direction, but it gathers pace and mass over time and eventually crushes anything in its path. And this is exactly um, what I'm talking about when I talk about the snowball rolling down the hill. This is degeneracy, gathering mass, reaching its peak and literally destroying the next generation of Western civilization. So now I'm going to put this out to the panel and ask others what they think of this. Brie, hello, it's great to have you back. And what are your thoughts? I mean, as a woman and hopefully one day a mother, what are your thoughts on this filth? And how would you feel if your children were one day subjected to this? Well, first of all, thank you so much, Tara and Mark, for having me back on. But I would feel so angry if my children were subjected to this. But when you think about it, they've been pushing it on us for quite some time, haven't they? Kind of slow increments. We saw this previously with the Beauty and the Beast uh, film that came out this year, where they had a little bit of LGBT, uh, LGBTQRS, whatever they're called now, issues in that film. And they said that Le Pew or whatever his name was, was attracted to Gaston in some small way. And then it came out and everybody's, oh, it was overplayed. It wasn't that big a deal. They kept downplaying it, like it's not that big a deal. And to me, when I see something like this, 
I think everybody would be upset by it who wasn't a radical liberal. Even the moderates would be upset by this. We heard a case of a teacher pushing transgenderism in her lectures to like, I think, first or second graders. And the kids came home in tears, not knowing, mommy, am I a boy? Am I a girl? I don't know anymore. And it's been proven through various psychological studies that introducing sexuality to children too young has very damaging effects. If my child were in public school and I saw this happening, I'd rip them out right away. But they just keep minimizing it and minimizing it and just putting a little bit here, a little bit there. I saw in a doctor cartoon aimed for toddlers recently, they featured a lesbian couple with an adopted baby. And if you have something to say about it, well, you're the bad guy. So they've been pushing it on this for a while, just in little increments, but now they're not even hiding their cards anymore. It's just full-blown degeneracy right in front of your kids. If you don't like it, you're anti-LGBTQRS, whatever. That's a very good point. I mean, I saw Beauty and the Beast, and I obviously saw the LGBT agenda being pushed on children through that film. But to me, the most hilarious thing about that film was the cleverest and wisest man in France in that era was obviously the black librarian, the one guy in the whole village who had the knowledge and was trying to enrich all those foolish and uneducated whites. I mean, only Hollywood could come up with such a laughable narrative. But our other guest tonight is Stephen Franson. He's written a book about self-knowledge and self-development. What kind of development do you think this filth would foster in children? Well, I think it pushes them toward, uh, it pushes them toward sexual deviancy. And there's no sure way to get a person to compromise themselves than by acting out sexually. It's really playing with fire. So if a person does something that they're ashamed of sexually or they're involved in something that they're, in, that they're you know, sex, that sexually compromises them, hurts them at some level, hurts their self-esteem, you really have turned this person into a slave. So the way I sort of see this <clears throat> cross-dressing freak show that was reading at the, at the public library to these children is that it's it's like a it's like a demon. It's like a gatekeeper, and this person only promises self-immolation and self-destruction. So these children are being shown, in a way, the gates of hell. They have to look upon this creature and have to some somehow normalize their feelings of disgust, their natural feelings of disgust and shame and fear. This starts to compromise them, and this will lead them to making poor choices sexually as they get older. And then when you make poor choices sexually. It's very easy to lean on you and to uh, influence you and to manipulate you. So I really warn parents away from exposing their children to pornography, to LGBT culture, these sorts of things, because it's, it's just a one-way ticket to uh, spiritual death. Right, and I also wanted to point out just for context that... Um the senator, I think he's a senator or governor or something, but um, the politician Scott Weiner, Jewish homosexual, um, who's actually responsible for pushing the uh, decriminalization of HIV, of spreading HIV in California, um, he, he actually commented on this and he said, I love satanic drag queens. In honor of this idiot, the person who he's talking about who says, you know, this isn't a good idea, Two drag queens will be the celebrity judges at my annual children's pumpkin 
carving. So he just loves to push it in people's faces and be like, oh, you don't like drag queens? Well, guess what? I'm going to be, you know, holding this children's event and I'm going to put two drag queens in there for you. Um, so I, I see this as uh, rubbing it in the face of Christians, basically. I think particularly Christians because these, uh, this drag queen is dressed up like Baphomet, um, who is obviously a, a, a depiction of a devil-like creature, um, or certainly some form of satanic demon. And uh, yeah, they're just kind of pushing it in people's faces. Like, look, we're gonna show this to your kids. We're gonna have this man dressed up as this um, genderless devil uh, reading to your children. If And if you don't like it, you know, there's something wrong with you. You know, that's how I feel about this. And um, in another picture of this particular person that was found online, this man who's dressed up like this, if you actually look closely at his teeth, uh, they've been filed and, um, I don't know, cosmetically altered to look like uh, fangs, like every single tooth. So this isn't even something that he's doing lightly. It appears that he's, you know, full on adopted this persona or, um, you know, to, to represent this demonic creature. This is how he lives his life. and. He's now, I assume, being paid to work with children in this fashion. Yeah, and another thing I noticed is that when I was a kid and I was that age, I was terrified of this type of thing. My mother took me on the tram ride when I was way too young in uh, L.A., and they had King Kong and Jaws on there trying to tear apart the ride, and I was petrified. If I saw something like this that looked like a demon with filed down teeth, when I was a little kid... I probably would have been crying my eyes out and just petrified, even to this day. I don't watch horror movies because I prefer to be able to sleep at night. So just on a moral basis of scaring children, even when you take the LGBT equation out of it, it's horribly frightening to show this to kids. No, it is. It's, it's absolutely... Um... It's, it's absolutely sickening. But one thing that Tara did say is he wants them at some Halloween sort of festival. Well, these freaks, that's the best place for them, isn't it? There's some kind of public freak show. I mean, the thing that really, really wrangles me and gets to me with all of this is at first we were just told we were going to accept people being what they wanted to be. What they did in their own homes was up to them. You know, what, what consenting adults do in their own homes. But then it's public displays. And it's public displays. And if you don't want to attend the public displays, you don't have to. But now it's not just public displays. It's forced in everyone's faces. And then the final stage is pushing it up upon children. And I don't usually bring out questions this early. Um, but I thought, as we're on topic, somebody asked the very good question. Considering all of these degenerate things the left do, what would you say their absolute end game is? And as I'm on the mic, I might as well give my thoughts briefly on what I believe their end game is. And I've said this many, many times before. I mean, I've written a book on it. It's the absolute destruction of Western civilization. And they will do that under the guise of tolerance because we are told to tolerate every form of sickness, 
everything, everything that's evil, everything that's destroying us, everything that's warping our minds, everything that's destroying our society, everything that's dragging us into the swamp, we are told to tolerate. In fact, it goes beyond that. We are told that these things are virtuous and good and we, that we should hold up the things destroying us as great virtues of the West, things that define us, when in fact they don't define us. They destroy us and they degrade us. And everything that's good and everything that's wholesome and everything that could hold us together and save us from our demise, they tell us those things are wrong. They're old fashioned, they're out of date. They're not progressive. And it essentially, it's pushing everything that's evil in the place of everything that's good. But that is ultimately what our enemies do. They take good things away from us and they create a vacuum. And then they ably fill that vacuum with something filthy, degenerate and rotten. And their end game, regardless of which avenue they push, is always the same. And I know that some people will say, well, Mark, are you really right? Because you're saying they're pushing LGBT and they're also pushing Islam. And LGBT and Islam, they're, they're opposites. They can't live together. Well, they don't care what they push. They push Islam because it damages the West. They, pull L they push LGBT because that is a vector for damaging things that destroy the West. And they don't mind that those two things are polar opposite as long as they both chip away at what defines us and at the fabric of our society. Stephen, I can see you're eager to come in on this. What are your thoughts? Right. Well, I've dug into Satanist literature a bit. Uh, I had my sort of, in, I had some intrigue coming into this because I learned about Pizzagate. And so I did I did a lot of research. I read some books on the New Age, which is just to cover up for, for Satanism. And I read into Satanism itself. And, you know, their end game really is to enslave the entire planet. The, it is a cult of death. It is a cult of, of evil. And they would like to enslave the planet. And they want to do this through RFID chips. And they want to, it's a very, it's a very psychological thing they're doing as well. They're manipulating everyone. They want to have the high priestesses of Satanism and the high priests be in charge of everyone else. And they want a prison planet, basically, where they can be administrators of different zones of the world. You know, there's maybe eight zones or 12 zones split up. And these will be administrated by central bankers and Satanists. And one of the key ways they infiltrate the minds of children is through sexual suggestion. And something that they hold in their literature, and I can't quote it directly, but they hold that there is a spot at the base of the spine that is a sort of G-spot. It's a sexual pleasure spot. And if they can stimulate this through uh, anal sex, they can turn a person into being much more suggestive to Satanism. So this is sort of kooky conspiracy land stuff, but this is some of the stuff that I learned. So when you start to notice how much they push, say in Salon.com or Slate or these different avenues, uh, uh, encouraging young people to experiment with anal play. I mean, this is really coming up right now. You'll start to piece together some of these pieces and it, it really occurs at a psychological level. It's all very suggestive and it's all very manipulative, but you can look at this and start to notice the patterns. I definitely would encourage anybody that has an interest in Satanism to research it, to try to understand it. It will only give you more ammunition to be able to fight the enemy. Yeah, I'm curious what books you looked at, Steve, if you, or what uh, resources you looked at there. 
right? It, it was a while. It was a while ago. It was a it was a rabbit hole. You know, it was like a four chan rabbit hole. And people go, oh, post your books, post your books, post the PDFs. And so, I, okay, I'll look into this. And you look into Alistair Crowley. You, you're looking at the um, you're looking at his disciples, the disciples of Alistair Crowley. He was he was the foremost Satanist of his day. Uh, you look at some of the people that are in the Knights Templar, uh, one of the grand leaders of the the Freemasons in the United States, the guy who basically established Freemasonry in the United States. He had a big beard and was like a child rapist guy, and he wrote some strange essays, and it's very dark, nasty stuff, but these threads come up every now and then on 4chan and, of course, on Vote uh, Pizzagate. So if you keep an eye out, you'll start to go down the rabbit hole and I just I always tell people make sure you resurface because this stuff is crazy. I mean, these people think that they're conjuring demons, and they think that they have uh, a sort of portal into another dimension. So it gets really, really kooky. I mean, they start talking about child sacrifice and blood orgies, and you start looking at some of the things that just happen at these different temples. You can you guys can look into Nicole Kidman. Uh, she apparently has been sort of alleged to be. In, into some of these things and you just go from there. It's like JFK stuff. I mean, go look at it for like two hours and then resurface, like come out of it. Don't don't pay it too much mind for a few days and, and just sort of let it settle in because this stuff is really hideous. It's, uh, you know, the very, very dark underbelly of uh, hu the human psychology. So, so these are some of the places you can look. Yeah, it is very strange. You know, I don't have like inside knowledge or anything, so I can't um, claim to talk about it. And when you do find people who who claim to have inside knowledge on this stuff, the kinds of things that they're talking about are literally shape shifting aliens. So you start thinking, like, what on earth are they talking about? Is this can this be real, etc. So I I'm a very open minded person, and I have the ability to remain agnostic, uh, which I think a lot of people struggle with. They want to know yes or no, is this happening or not? I personally uh, choose to remain agnostic and just, you know, when I do find really strange things, I present them, you know, as evidence for people to make up their own mind or just to, to take note of and you know put in the back of their mind for later on. But we know that um, in the WikiLeaks, they talk about uh, making sacrifices to Moloch, I think it was. Um, so these are leaked emails between Hillary Clinton and some other people working for her, etc. And um, they, yeah, they also make a lot of other references to what people have alleged um, are regarding basically abuse of children um, and in addition to that they seem to be constantly connected with what they call LGBTQ plus plus etc which is homosexuality and there does appear I mean it's like it's just basic pattern recognition these people who are involved in pushing the communist stuff they tend to also be involved in pushing the sexual perversion stuff they and they tend to be very light-hearted about things like satanism bordering on having a strong interest in it and even using the kind of symbology uh symbology symbolism so um yeah some, being an agnostic myself, you know, it's, um, I can't just, you know, I know a lot of Christians would just immediately be like, oh, it's, they're a Satanist, that explains it all. Um, for me, that it that is not, uh, I, I can't just say that. 
you know, I, I don't accept that as an answer. I mean, maybe it's the answer, but um, the other perspective is that perhaps they just rebel against all that was traditionally viewed as good. And, and the opposite of that is what was traditionally viewed as bad, such as sexual perversion, Satanism, um, child abuse, etc. So it's hard to know exactly what's going on, um, but no doubt they love using the sat satanic uh, symbolism and they love um, indulging in perversions and things like this. And they just think it's great for some reason. So let's hear from Brie. Well, I really don't know that much about Satanism. I can't really add to that aspect of it. But when I think of the end game, what is their ultimate end game in this? I think of, I had this conversation with Mark just yesterday. I think of Herbert Marcuse in a book he wrote, I think it was called Regressive Tolerance. And it was basically a collection of essays trying to prove that anything old worldly, anything representing like the patriarchy or the family can also be seen as oppressive. And we need to bust free of that. The capitalism can be just as oppressive as a totalitarian state or is a totalitarian state in and of itself. And I guess I kind of go along the cliche lines as far as what their end game is. I heard a clip of various Jewish supremacists saying these things that they want the whole planet to be mochaccino colored and we'll only know a utopia once we have like one race because one race that's mochaccino colored would obviously be easier to control because you want to create a really chaotic situation where people turn to the government for help and the government offers a solution and that's how they seize power. It was Lenin who said give me the children and after I think a decade or two he had an entire generation completely brainwashed and that's why they want to push this stuff on children first. They might have given up hope on millennials or Generation Z, and they're just going after the youngest they possibly can because they maybe have a longer game in sight. Because there are a lot of other cultures in the world that don't think of things in the immediate like we do. When you think of, I don't know, the Islamic cultures or uh, the Viet Cong, they didn't think of anything as far as we want victory tomorrow. They thought, well, we want victory maybe 100 years from now, 200 years from now. They have a much longer time frame in mind. And I think that's our enemies. They have a longer time frame in mind. And they know they can get that done maybe a little bit faster by reaching the children. I completely agree. On the Satanist thing, I, uh, I must admit, I haven't looked into the whole Satanist angle maybe as much as I should. But I'd echo what Bree said. There is an insidious clique of internationalists and we know who these people are and these people are the ones pulling the strings they're pulling the strings of the media they're pulling the strings in banking they're pulling the strings of our politicians and these people know that the only challenge that has ever been to their power is the indigenous European people and by wiping us out by taking us into the swamp of degeneracy and causing our DNA to be destroyed and lost to the planet forever. They know no one will stand in their way. They know that once they dissolve our culture, our heritage and our traditions, they will be the only ones on the planet with culture and heritage and tradition. And that will give them something that no one else has got. That will give them a cohesive sense of self-worth where they stick together as a collective and everyone else will just be a wishy-washy mochaccino mess that doesn't have anything 
individuals who will never stand against this clique. And that is why they do this. Because once they've broken us, they are like shipwreckers. And once our ship of state is smashed against the rocks of degeneracy, they will profit a huge amount from that. And that is what they're doing. They are profiteers from misery. And it is our misery that they're profiting from. And this is why we fight against them. And there very may well be a Satanist element in this, especially for the traitorous whites who support these internationalists. But never forget who these internationalists are. And Brie hit the nail perfectly on the head. Tara, your thoughts? Well, as I was saying, like, I... Uh... I wish I knew what was going on, you know, but I I don't. So I think we just have to keep an open mind. And basically, we can see that what they're doing is consistently destructive. Um, they probably all have different motivations for what they're doing. Um, and yeah, they're they're very much anti-white. You know, there are literally laws in every white country right now that prohibit the criticism of things that are destructive to our countries. Um, and they're, they're really uh, softly, but then also harder when they need to, uh, pushing us towards suicide. You know, they're basically forcing us into suicide. What do you think, Steve? Well, as you were talking, I was thinking about uh, the Clinton Foundation and some of the things that we've been hearing, hearing coming out of Haiti and how they were supposed to handle the cleanup in Haiti. But what happened actually was the money just got funneled away from the people and some super villas were built or something like this some mansions on the hill or something some super resort was built and that was it and that's like all they did with the money and then a bunch of kids started disappearing and we hear these we hear these things here and there i mean this really hasn't broken into the mainstream yet but we'll hear things here and there Oh, a, a casket full of children's organs was discovered. Oh, you know, this record amount of children went, went missing in Haiti. Oh, these, you know, port cities where the Clinton Foundation is, is running ships to. Wow, what's going on with this? So we see all the patterns. And whether there's, whether there's people, you know, doing this eyewise shut sort of everyone wearing goat's head sort of thing, I mean, it's really a question of forensics, but if, if you look at the patterns, if you look at what does come out in the news, you start to get a very clear picture of a, of a highly powerful, very wealthy internationalist class, as Mark, Mark calls them internationalists, I think that's a good word for them. They really, are, they really, I think, see themselves as administrators, as world administrators. And so, hey, if they need to snatch some kids' organs to give to their kids, or if they need to do blood transfusions with, you know, 18-year-olds that they kidnapped or whatever. Hey, it's, it's on the table. It's on the table because there's a massive human trafficking ring in the world. So whatever they want to do, I mean, it's really a question of forensics. And we'll have to get in there and we'll have to get the police, uh, you know, police forces and, and the detectives. Uh, we'll have to get all them sort of in there. But they have the wherewithal to do it. And that's spooky. Why would you why would you have this human trafficking ring in the first place? And so people are starting to speak out about this and I think the more we can push that whether or not there's whether or not demons are actually being conjured and whether Alistair Crowley is speaking to people from the dead and 
it really doesn't matter because the infrastructure is such that they can get away with some pretty heinous crimes and we have to be attacking at that. So whatever opens up beyond that, I, I'm sure it will shock us all, um, but we have to be very clear on what's happening to the young people in our society and they are being exposed to sex and they are being snatched up in record numbers and this is something that we do have direct control over. Thank you for that, Stephen. And I think that takes us nicely on to some other topics because we have a list of things we're going to discuss. And this week we're discussing, a, well, today, there's going to be another show on Friday, obviously. We're discussing things specifically that seem to be affecting children. And another way they attack our youth is, of course, through mass immigration. And this week there has been a child refugee who went to Sweden and he was welcomed in and he was welcomed in by a Christian group. And he went along to one of these Christian camps and he sexually assaulted a 14-year-old girl at one of these camps. But the shocking thing about this isn't just what he did at the camp, but after this, him and a group of people who have been called his supporters have harassed this 14-year-old girl and made her life a misery, even going as far as calling for her to be punished. Now, this is always something that I think shows the great hypocrisy of feminists. I mean, I spoke earlier about how different attacks on the West aren't necessarily cohesive. You see, Islam doesn't necessarily get along with the LGBT lobby. And another thing that Islam doesn't get along with is the feminists. But this is how you can tell it's all an attack on the West. You see, these feminists will attack and shout down young victims of Muslim grooming gangs, girls who have been sexually assaulted by immigrants, because these feminists, they're only ever bothered about supposed transgressions against females when the people doing these transgressions are white males. When it's Muslim grooming gangs, when it's immigrants assaulting women in the street, or in this case, a child refugee who sexually assaulted an underage girl, all of these feminists are silent. They aren't talking about rape culture. They aren't talking about Islamic rape culture. They're silent, and in fact, if they were to speak out, they would probably be the ones silencing this poor young victim to make sure that the multicultural narrative is never challenged. And for me, I think this is what shines a light so strongly on the fact that all these different groups are being used to attack the West. Now, obviously, we have two female panelists tonight. Brie, what are your thoughts on this wave of horrendous sexual assaults that are sweeping Europe and the way that feminists are actually playing a role in covering them up? I think they're covering their own butts because they were the ones standing there with their welcome refugee sign. And then they feel betrayed by other women who break this, I guess, kind of hacked they have as far as welcoming in the refugees. They kind of committed a gender crime in that they're speaking up about what happened to them. So it's disgusting that women have been warped in this type of way to the point where they claim to be feminists, but as soon as someone is raped that goes against their narrative, they will hoard on them. And suddenly it's not about unity of women. It's solely about 
maintaining that narrative. And it also saddens me to think that Christianity, maybe in that part of the world, I don't want to label everybody in that region because I realize not everybody who's Christian is this way, but I've seen Christianity and even Catholicism get really cucked in that it's uh, become very liberal. And there, even we have the Pope out there saying that Europe must take in refugees. So the fact that it was a Christian group that welcomed this guy is really repulsive to me because I don't know the exact verse. I'm not really well versed in the Bible. I'll say that right here. But I have been told there are various verses in the Bible that say, no, you, you have the right to defend yourself. You have the right to defend your homeland and your people. Don't just let yourself die off. There's nothing honorable about that. Now, I'm sure someone's going to try to correct me and say that's not in there, but I, I have a good Catholic friend who worked with Catholic media for a while who read me out the various verses that said this. So the fact that they're taking on this attitude of more and more liberalism and welcoming in, welcoming in these refugees, not looking out for their own, and the fact that it was a Christian group that let him in, to me, is deeply disheartening. and goes to show just how damaged Christianity is right now. Well, I just want to say I, I really hate these uh, people who call themselves feminists, you know, they use this term feminist basically so that they can hide behind the vulnerability of women, you know, as the fairer sex and all, um, to basically carry out their Marxist agenda, you know, so they try to make things out as if, oh, this is somehow going to benefit women. What they're really trying to do is just tear down the patriarchy, which basically means tear down white men and the structure of Western civilization with it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I absolutely hate the fact that they've associated, you know, their label, feminism, with, you know, female femininity, when it's got really nothing to do with it, other than the fact that they hide behind victims in order to push their agenda. And we see this time and time again with these degenerates. Um, for example, that guy who I was talking about before, the politician uh, Scott Weiner. He actually said that one of the reasons why he wanted to um, legalize the spreading of HIV is because uh, he, it somehow protects vulnerable women who are in abusive relationships. Now, I've got no idea what reasoning he came up with uh, that it that legalizing the spread of HIV somehow protects vulnerable women, but I can clearly see. I don't. I'm not even going to bother looking into his reasoning because time and time again I see they just use women um, to push you know these laws through that have nothing to do whatsoever with benefiting women and are actually just trying to push their degeneracy so um, yeah I mean if anything I'm sure this spreading HIV thing is probably gonna if anything, disproportionately negatively affect women who are going to be infected with HIV, um, possibly by rapists, etc. And it's just, they're not even going to be charged with giving them this lethal lifelong illness. So it disgusts me. And uh, yeah, it's BS, absolute BS. They like to use vulnerable people, whether it's disabled or women or children. They don't care one little bit about them or the poor as well that Marxists used, or minorities, they always want to use these vulnerable groups just to push their agenda without being questioned. Because if you question it, oh, you must hate women, oh, you must hate minorities, oh, you must you know, hate disabled people or something. And I don't know if you guys have heard this, 
I've heard this a little bit here or there from feminist women. They use this argument all the time. Whenever you bring up rape crime statistics of black people or of Muslims, it's always, well, white men rape too. We have rape culture on college campuses, which to me is simply ridiculous. If you look at any of the stats, it's very, very clear that these Mexican cultures and people of the black community and people from these Arab cultures, they rape at a very much higher level. I had a friend who went to India and she said she'd never been groped so much in her life. It's just a normal part of some of these societies where they just don't respect women. And then these feminists have the nerve to say, well, white men rape too. Sorry, but in a civilized white society, you see a lot less of that than in these other cultures. Yeah, uh, I, when I was living in China, my wife was groped uh, at a swimming pool, and uh, so was so were a couple of her friends, and you know it got so bad that um, one of my one of my friends over there she was carrying around a, a big knife on her because she go she'd been on the subway several times, and different things had been happening to her from these Chinese men. And it got to the point where, you know, she was riding on an escalator and a Chinese guy flipped up her skirt and put his hand right on her bottom. Uh, just, you know, and, and he, he smiled. He looked at her and he smiled and she clubbed him in the face. And after that, she had to just carry a knife on her. And she moved out of China right quick. And so something, something I think that people don't want to acknowledge is that a lot of these men from these third world cultures see white women as a real prize as a real prize to grab and attain and it's you know this we, <laughs> there's this label that gets thrown around white supremacist oh white supremacist you guys are nazis and white supremacists and you know just people want to sort of screech it until they're blue in the face well let's look at all these men in the, from these third world cultures that are holding white genetics as the highest and as the most desirable and that which needs to be attained even through physical violence are they not some sort of supremacists? Are they not? Are they not feeding into the myth of white supremacy? I mean, where where's the pushback? But there's no recognition of in-group, out-group. Marxism is this real leveling force. Feminism is this real leveling force, just meant to make everybody the same. It's never going to work. We here in America have have a certain culture, and it has allowed women the the right to vote, and they can drive, and they can do all sorts of wonderful things. Um, where is the recognition that these third world men behave like savages and they treat whites as the supreme race? I mean, what's going on here? What's going on, feminists? Or do we have any feminists on the stream? Speak up. Well, there's something I wanted to add to what Bree said. Bree talked about Christianity and about the morals that Christianity preaches. And I always like to ask myself the question, what would Jesus do? Because you always have to remember when you ask yourself the question, what would Jesus do? That kicking over tables and whipping money lenders is one of the approved responses. And that's certainly something that I'd like to do. But moving on onto other forms of child abuse, we saw over the weekend, everyone's famous blue train, Thomas the Tank Engine, he's going to be given a multicultural and gender-balanced overhaul. 
which means more female trains and even immigrant trains from Africa. Now, I find the immigrant trains from Africa particularly troubling, as they didn't even invent the wheel. So I'm not sure they quite got to the steam engine. But he is going to have an African companion. Now, all of this is actually quite funny. And I do see the humorous side to this, because at the end of the day, we can all be super serious all the time and, you know, take everything really the wrong way. And sometimes you have to laugh at their ludicrous attempts to indoctrinate our children. But there is also the serious side to this, the fact that children will grow up finding these things normal, thinking that, oh, well, Thomas the Tank Engine has an African friend. So, you know, it'd be totally great for me to have an African friend. And the way they push race mixing, the way they push multiculturalism upon children is completely insidious. Now, I've got two very good friends who recently, they gave birth to their second child. And I visited them at the weekend and I took obviously gifts for the children. And I took them a copy of uh, Aesop's Fables, a complete collection of Aesop's Fables, which I think is wonderful reading for all youngsters. But one thing that I really, really admire about my friends is they don't have a television. They are not exposing their children to this poison. And they've said when it comes time to show the children TV, because obviously you can't keep it from them forever, they're going to be showing them things like Watership Down, Winnie the Pooh, things that are much more healthy, much more traditional. And when I see things like this, it really does sort of chime with me. Because when, when I was a child, I remember watching things with my mother. I remember um, the fact that children's TV only came on for a few hours every day. I think it came on once in the morning at about 11 to 11.30, and I would watch that with my mum. I think it was called Play School. And then later in the afternoon, there'd be some cartoons, and then um, an Australian soap opera called Neighbours. I'm sure that everyone who's from England remembers Neighbours. Obviously, that's where Kylie Minogue started out, and Jason Donovan, people remember that. It was quite tame, especially by today's standards. But one thing you see now is increasingly there are these channels which just pump out 24-hour television shows for children and parents are using these television channels as unpaid babysitters and the kids are sitting there literally watching this multicultural poison and the parents are allowing this unpaid babysitter to brainwash their children with this multicultural, gender-twisted nonsense, which is going to affect them and affect their mental state for the Mark, rest of their lives. Some people in the chat are asking, which is a reasonable question, you know, um, what's so bad about them having a black friend or, or being indoctrinated to multiculturalism? They're actually, they're actually uh, asking that. Well, let me explain. All of this is a slippery slope. And the fact is, when they push multiculturalism, the end goal of multiculturalism, as we've already discussed, is miscegenation. It's the breeding out and replacement of white people. And by getting young children to accept having a black friend might seem very innocent. It might seem 
sort of, oh, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with children accepting this? What's wrong with children accepting other cultures? But the end goal of this is to accept replacement immigration. And the way they force immigration on the West is through the idea that because you're friends with that one person who you like from another culture, you should accept your cultural annihilation. Because you get on with Mr. Singh, who's 80 years old and runs the corner shop, you should accept a flood of refugees. But what if all the refugees are just like friendly old Mr. Singh at the corner shop? You wouldn't lock them out, would you? Oh my God, that would be terrible. How could you do such a thing? And that's how they emotionally manipulate our people. And what they're going to do with young children is make sure that every young child accepts multiculturalism and more so is emotionally tied to it in some way so that they can't object and won't object to their own replacement so that they think it is normal for people of African descent to be living here. So they think it is normal for people of all cultures and races to flood into the West, just like we talked about Beauty and the Beast earlier, and just like there's been a host of other historical dramas and recreations on TV recently, where black people are now playing a fundamental role in medieval Europe. We have black Vikings. The other day I saw something and I retweeted it, about one of the Norman conquerors, one of the people who invaded Britain in 1066. In 1066, one of the key players was apparently black. And these youngsters are being drip fed this so that they actually believe that our entire illustrious history was interwoven with people from other cultures. Yeah. And not only will that lead to our destruction, but it's also factually incorrect. Yeah, I think that's really, really insidious. They're trying to rewrite history to pretend that white people never had their own countries, basically, when obviously that was you know, our entire history, 10,000 years, um, according to conventional science. Uh, let's hear from Steve. What do you have to say on this topic, Steve? Wait, you need to unmute. <laughs> Got to unmute. So you bring in third world peoples, you're going to have third world problems. And if you acclimate children to third world peoples, you're going to acclimate, you're going to put them in the way of third world problems. So as we found out with, there's this guy who had, he has a yogurt company called Chobani and it has its headquarters in Twin Falls, Idaho. And we recently had news last year, I believe it was 2016, of two or three migrant boys there living in an in a apartment complex who got a little girl, maybe eight, nine-year-old girl, I believe it was a girl, and they raped her. They simulated sex on her. They peed on her when they were done. And apparently they took cell phone video of this. This, this is my recollection. That girl probably went into that interaction thinking, oh, these kids, I want to get along with them. No sense of stranger danger, no sense of outgroup. And this is the risk that we run when we sort of take our children, our Western children, and say, oh, you'll get along with these rapey Indians. Oh, you'll get along with these kidnappy Muslims. It's, uh, it's really unrealistic. I grew up around Mexican children, 
And these Mexican children just had a sort of resentment of me for having lighter skin than them. And so they would spit on me and they would try to kick me between my legs. And I asked around and I asked my father about this and apparently this was pretty common. So it's not all sunshine and rainbows just because it's an African train really it's you know It's like a Belgian train left over from the 50s or whenever they left Africa it, We we think it's all sunshine and rainbows, but they really bring third world problems with them We have to protect our children from these issues Yeah, what I wanted to say on this um, African train and Thomas the tank engine issue is um, Really, it's it's kind of a cruel joke on the Africans because Africans have never built anything that even sort of resembles a train you know of their own abilities obviously um trains were invented by european people very well copied by the chinese and now uh european um who previously built train tracks in africa um and now newly chinese trains built by the chinese obviously for very industrial purposes are the only trains that have ever been in Africa. And uh, it's it's kind of, I, I mean, I, I think that's really quite humiliating to African people. I mean, I would find that humiliating if I was an African. Um, but of course they have their various narratives and uh, excuses for why that is. Um, so yeah, I mean, for anyone who knows the truth about the situation, it's practically a cruel joke, but it is misrepresenting reality to children um, in a very obviously child childish way, and uh, it's a form of indoctrination. Anyhow, we have Peter Sweden joining us. Um, I don't know. It, would you guys mind if we moved on from this topic because I know Peter's got an important topic to talk about um, right now. Peter, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. I was talking to I was talking to Anne there. <laughs> Yeah, apologies. I was a bit late joining today. I've been uh, moving today uh, into my new apartment here in Norway, so that's why I was late. So yeah, I'm finally here. It's extremely cold in the house, but uh, I'm here. <laughs> so you said um, there's been a, a bomb uh, in Sweden, was that? Yes. If, yeah, if you want me to talk about it, I can give it a full story. Uh, there was uh, at uh, 20 minutes past midnight, uh, there was a uh, bomb that went off in the Swedish city of Helsingborg, uh, actually at the police station. Uh, so um, someone had planted a bomb at the police station, which uh, destroyed the whole entrance. It was a massive bomb. It completely blew the whole entrance away. Uh, and the shockwave also blew out the 40 windows uh, in the opposite building. Uh, which is actually a, um, a doctor's building, so they actually had to cancel 200 patients uh, because they didn't have any windows. They blew out 40 windows from the bomb. Um, and obviously, the, 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 the Swedish Prime Minister said it's a very special, uh, unprecedented event that's happened. Uh, I mean, of course, you have these uh, people that are running around blowing up the police station. I mean, that's basically an attack on democracy. It's, who are these people? Well, it took a while for the mainstream media to catch up on catch up on what happened. Okay, it was quite big news in Sweden, but uh, for the international English-speaking media, it's uh, taken a while for them to catch up. And I, and I just read Sky News. They said it's the mafia in Sweden that's behind, <laughs> that's behind this bombing. <laughs> 
it's apparently a Swedish mafia, uh, which I'm not aware exists at all. But I do know there is uh, these criminal migrant gangs that exist in these nearby no-go yeah. zones. I think it's quite reasonable to describe them as like a, a mafia. Actually, um, obviously, it's an attempt to not say Muslim, you know, but they do act in a very mafia-like way. So I actually like that. Oh yeah, they're they're using that word. Um, yeah, you could kind of call. It, I mean, they are migrant. They are criminal gangs that are doing these things. So it's it's a kind of mafia, but they, they don't mention that they are actually migrants because it's really obvious the police actually mentioned who they were dealing with. Uh, they, well, they didn't say it directly, but they said it like uh, kind of indirectly. Uh, they said they thought it was related to all of the work they were doing in certain areas. Uh, and I think we can all know which these certain areas are. Um, it's yeah. quite obvious these no-go zones that they have been doing some work in, and they don't really appreciate that. So they kind of uh, they kind of go to the police station and blow it up, basically. Yeah, um, and I, I think it's very interesting to observe the fact that if this has happened like five years ago, it would have been mainstream news all over America and mainstream news all over the Western countries because you know, blowing up a police station used to be a big deal, but nowadays it's just an every week happening uh, as a direct consequence of letting Muslims into our countries. Um, this, is Mark, actually, this is actually the, sorry, oh, this sorry. actually the third bombing uh, in just five days. Is it, third is it, bombing just, yeah, it's just five. a third, bomb, third bombing in five days. In Sweden. So on, on the 12th of October, yeah, on the 12th of October we had um, uh, a guy opened the door to his car and uh, there was a bomb inside it blew up uh, he managed to survive uh, then a few days later there was another car bomb and then we had this bomb at the police station right let's hear from Bree did you catch that I heard the very end of it about there being with the fifth bombing in a week there and that's just repulsive it just shows that uh, we're getting more and more normalized by this we're, we're just getting used to it oh it's another bombing how many this time and then you have the cliche on Twitter of uh, don't immediately blame Islam and then almost every time it's an Islamist but uh, yeah it's repulsive I, I apologize I only caught the tail end of that because my dog informed me that she had to go out right away <laughs> and uh Steve, I mean, do you want to talk about that? Um, or I mean, it's getting almost boring to talk about terrorist attacks now. Maybe you could talk about the public response, you know, the fact that we're not even even caring anymore, barely even noticing. Oh, well, the media's, media's, media's nasty, man. I'm glad that Peter's out there and, and others because the media is in collusion with big money. Um, and what happens when you speak out about these things? I was just looking about uh, looking at this thing that happened in Idaho that I was talking about in Twin Falls, the same city that Chobani Yogurt is working out of. The guy who founded Chobani is from Turkey, and he basically filed a big lawsuit against Alex Jones to get him to shut up about this rape that happened. Uh, apparently, it wasn't a rape; it was a sexual assault. And apparently, these boys weren't Syrian; they were from Eritrea, and and so the media runs with this and the justice system runs with this and they they shut down discussion of these events so we really need alternative media out there shining a light to us it's still horrifying there's a, a there was a police station that was bombed this is anarchy this is this is what everyone doesn't want happening uh, but because you have the media the mainstream media sort of controlling the narrative and you know, sending hush money in the right places and threatening litigation, this stuff can't get out. So fortunately with, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, the, 
the bombing of the police station was covered extensively in the Swedish media, but but who knows what will be and what won't be. So thank goodness we have Peter and other people out there getting boots on the ground to cover this stuff. Yeah, and uh, Peter literally just put in our private chat that they've just found another bomb. So this makes four bombs in five days in Sweden. And in case you don't know, Sweden has a population of like Greater London. So it's kind of like... Uh, it's it's almost like a city in itself. Like that's how small the population is, and they've had four bombs in five days. So uh, we can only imagine things are going to get worse from here on out. I mean, when do we just declare the place a war zone, Peter? Sorry, starting time mute again. There, my computer is a bit slow <laughs> at the moment. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you have to. Yes, uh, there was just breaking news out here just an hour ago. Another bomb uh, found. Uh, they managed. To, it seems like the bomb squad managed to disarm it, but it was placed underneath the car, so it's another car bomb. Uh, but they managed to disarm it this time before it exploded. So that was just an hour ago. Um, so yeah, there's two bombs now in one day and four bombs in five days. I mean, you have to seriously ask yourself. Um, is there a war going on here? I mean, uh, this is the kind of scenario you actually have in war zones. I mean, are you in Afghanistan or are you in Sweden? And I think, um, I think, I think the obvious answer is that um, these people they don't want to integrate. It doesn't seem like they really like us that much, and it seems like they're trying to take over. That's basically what's happening in these no-go zones: is migrants taking over parts of the countries, completely taking over them, just running them as they as they like. And now they are bombing uh, the rest of the population. I mean, you really have to look at this as some kind of war scenario. I mean, that's that's what they are doing. I mean, it's not from our side. It's not from the Swedish population side. It's actually the, this these migrants that are actually behaving like it is war. I mean. The guy that I met in Gothenburg, he was using a sling, a sling to throw rocks at the police and at me. Uh, and then you have these guys, you know, going around bombing. It you really have to look at this. I mean, what should the Swedish police do? I mean, they should really put in the military and just get rid of these no-go zones. But obviously, that's not politically correct. Um, I don't know what it will come to. It's it's genuinely scary. Well, when I see this type of thing, I think to myself, well, yeah, it is war. Why wouldn't it be war to them? Because A, their religion pretty much preaches for them to go out and conquer and Islamatize the whole world. And B, the West has spent like what? Almost two decades now bombing the crap out of them. Then we welcome them into our countries. So yeah, they are going to look at it as uh, conquering us. And what a better way for our enemies to exploit our altruism to let them out of these war-torn areas and into our countries. And we were talking about the end game of the left earlier. And as far as what do they want in the end? Well, chaos would be perfect because a society that's completely broken, disheveled, and people are completely atomized from one another and working as individuals and no one can really trust one another will turn to who? The government. And that's how you ultimately seize control. I know I sound a little bit conspiracy theory-esque when I go on, go on about that, but when I hear about all these bombings and all these all this mistrust going on, I just think, well, yeah, that just plays right into our enemy's hands, doesn't it? It certainly does, and uh, I've got to add this about the terrorism. 
I used to be very vocal about the thing. The thing I disliked most in the wake of any terrorist attack was I always hated these absolutely cooked shows of sort of, what can I say, um, well, it's really white people just lying down and taking it and asking for more. These candlelit vigils, these people saying, oh, if we all hold hands and sing Kumbaya, well, the immigrants aren't holding hands with you, love. You know, that it's just you and other whites who are inviting your own death. That's who you're holding hands with. You're literally saying, come and give me more when you've just been, well, you and your people have just been brutally murdered. But I never thought I'd say, I actually kind of miss those candlelit vigils, because now we've got to the point where they're not even holding them anymore. Terrorism's become so normal. We don't sit and ask for more. We're just like, oh, that's just part of daily life. We don't do anything now. And this is really worrying. You know, at, at one point, you know, there was, there was outrage. It was the front page of every newspaper, you know, bomb found in European city or blast in Belgian airport. There was at least a response, you know, all these you know, these lefties, they would go out and they'd hold their multi-faith ceremonies. And, you know, when you say multi-faith, as I said, it's really only white people who turn up to those because the other people don't like us very much. And, you know, at least there was a response, but now there's nothing. And one of my big worries is that the next generation of European youth will grow up in a world where terrorism, where bombing, where sexual assaults, where grooming, where female genital mutilation are parts of everyday life. And they don't even get reported on. No one cares. It's just normal life. Just like just like normal life here in Britain is, you know, a rainy, a rainy Friday afternoon, followed by a dash to the bus stop, followed by fish and chips for tea. That's normal life. Oh, oh, and there was a bomb blast that we saw when we were on the way home on the bus. That was also part of normal life. And that's absolutely abhorrent. That's absolutely shocking. But I think the government wants to normalize this. I think our enemies want us to see this as part and parcel of life. And that's the problem. It shouldn't be part and parcel of life. It should be the opposite of that. Well, I, people are even virtue signaling, like during one of the last major bombings in London. I don't even know which one because there are so many. Um, but, you know, people were just continuing partying, like right next to where a bomb went off. And it's just like, oh, who cares? And it's just like, oh, yeah, you're so cool, aren't you? By gosh, people are being stabbed to death by Muslims right near you, and you're just continuing partying. This is the, this is individualism for you. Um, what do you think, Steve? Well, yeah, I think it's also nihilism. I mean, if they can get us to accept widespread anarchy and terrorist violence as the new normal, Where's the, where's the place to retreat to? Well, the place to retreat to psychologically is nihilism, and that's to just give up caring. So, Mark, you've, you've totally hit it on the nail on the head that, you know, we're going to start missing those candlelit vigils. We're going to miss when the left cried a little bit over things because we'll just become so desensitized and so closed down. We'll be just living in our apartment, hiding away. Uh, you know, the government benefits will be rolling in and... We'll just be totally separated from our humanity. It's actually a very healthy response to, in the face of repeated explosions and deaths, to feel horror and outrage and to continue to feel horror and outrage. But they, you know, the powers that be want us pitted against each other and they want us fatigued. They want us war fatigued uh, so that we'll give up our humanity, so that we'll be good order followers. So. 
And I think that's something to note, actually, is that people in a time of crisis, as Brie was pointing out, they look to authority. And authority tells them, after these Muslim bombings, they say, you know, this is a religion of peace. You know, it's almost like some kind of trauma-based mind control. I mean, this is getting a little bit on the conspiracy side of things, but um, it kind of looks like it. Uh, what would you say, Brie? I think that sounds really accurate. And I always worry about where they're going to go next with this when they've normalized the bombings. What are they going to try to normalize next? We'll see people saying, well, female genital mutilation, that's just how they express their religion. And soon it won't be a bomb going off next door that people will be like, oh, who cares? Soon it'll be a little girl having her genitals mutilated. Or personally, I think the next thing that they really want to push forward is polygamy. We've already seen them try to push forward pedophilia and oh, who cares, it's normal. Now it's gonna be polygamy. That's gonna be the new frontier for the left because who engages in polygamy the most right now? The Muslims. So to me, you hit the nail on the head, that's exactly what we're seeing. It's this individualism on crack where, well, we don't have a cohesive society where people can trust one another because to me, in a trustworthy society where you know your neighbors, you hear a bomb go off next door I'm going to go rushing in there to see if people are okay, get the smoke out of my face and be looking for survivors, call 911, drag people out of there. But no, nowadays, I mean, after the Boston Marathon bombing, people were running toward the bombing to help people. And now people are just like, oh, there's a bomb. What else is new? So it's really tragic. We're seeing that our actions are playing into our enemy's hands right before us just with the hyper, I guess, really... I, I, yeah, individualism on crack. I don't know of a better way to put it. Yeah, can I add to Bray there on uh, polygamy? You said they're gonna, that's the next thing they're going to push. Well, they're actually pushing that in Sweden right now, if you haven't seen. Um, actually, it's been on. Um, it's been on the media. You can notice they're starting to push it. Uh, even the the center party, one of the top politicians there, they want to legalize pol uh, polygamy. Uh, <laughs> However you pronounce it in English, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, and they actually had on the actual red head of the day on the Swedish state on media, they actually had a Islamol um, Islamologist, I think they called her, whatever that means. Um, and she's a feminist as well. And she was talking about how great uh, polygamy is and how they need to legalize that and so on and so on and so on. And then I had a big article on how on how good it was and why they need to legalize it and, and so on. Um, and I also had another, another another supposed feminist who was... Uh, she did an interview, she, she is a, a Muslim. Uh, she did an interview with the, with the media in Sweden and said, uh, yeah, we need to legalize polygamy and so on. And then the next sentence she went on and said that she's actually a slave to her husband, but yeah, she still wants to legalize polygamy. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what's coming. I mean, that's definitely coming next. So you can see Sweden being the kind of experiment ground for this to happen. Yeah, I think we actually, I don't know if it was The Guardian or a different newspaper, but, but they were talking about like what we can learn. Oh, it was The Independent. What we can learn from, from Islam to prevent sexual assault. And it was just, I mean, is this like some kind of ridiculous, sick joke or something? I mean, it's actually legal in Islam. Keeping sex slaves is something Muhammad did. Raping children is something Muhammad did. Uh, this is the guy that they aspire to be like. So the insanity, and someone pointed out that this newspaper, The Independent, is like 
largely owned by a Saudi. So it's not surprising that they um, they cuck like that. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of these um, companies like Twitter and various different newspapers are actually owned by very wealthy Muslim Saudis, so they can't say anything bad about Muslims. I know uh, Stephen has uh, something to add to his topic. Can I just jump in here a second? I've actually got the headline you were talking about right in front of me, so it's actually slightly worse than you said. How the teachings of Islam could help us prevent more sexual abuse scandals. Harvey Weinstein is just another case of a powerful man abusing women because we live in a society that lets him get away with it. But we can change that. I think this uh, journalist, and I say that in the loosest possible terms, needs to be taken to Rotherham where we can meet some of the 1400 white girls who are systematically groomed and sexually abused by these Muslims. And I can only shudder to think what society is going to be like when we have more of these people in our midst and we've bent even more towards an Islamic way of life. Sorry to put in there, Stephen. I, I just wanted to read the actual headlines. So I'll pass it over to you. Oh, sure. Well, something I want to say that I've noted is there is a lot of cynicism. So not only is there nihilism, which is this just giving up on life and giving up on meaning, but there's a cynicism, uh, particularly I, I've experienced it speaking from a public platform, and I'm sure that you guys have, there's a cynicism in the young people, particularly in the young men. And that's to say that, oh, Stephen or Tara or Peter or Mark or Bree, what you are doing is just in your selfish interests. And speaking out about these things and being horrified about these things, well, you're just, you're, what are you doing? Why are you acting this way? Shouldn't you just know that this is the way things are? Just accept your yoke. Accept the chains of your sla slavery and your bondage that have been put on you by the powers that be and just join us in our Rick and Morty humor where we just laugh at the absurdity of life and the insanity of it all. And it's a real way of, of sheltering oneself from actually having to feel intense feelings about these things that are happening. If you can just look at, at the people that talk about these things and feel that continue to still feel outrage about these things with cynicism, then you're set against your own man and you really are a slave to the system and you're willing to bow to political power and do what they want for you and for your life and you will not be a part of the resistance. So I encourage anybody who has feelings of cynicism out there to really explore them, examine, examine them and understand them in themselves and not to try to attack us with your cynicism because it will fall short. We're here for the long haul. We're here to see the West rise again, and we will not relinquish our persistence. And that's something that tends to really piss me off, too, is when people look at what we do with a really type of cynicism, as you said, they seem to think that, oh, they're doing this to get subscribers, they're doing this for attention, why are they being so negative, they're just spreading hate, blah, 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 blah. Whose life was made more convenient by talking about alt-right topics publicly? I mean, Tommy Robinson's life was not made easier by talking about Islam. I don't know anybody on the alt-right or anybody who talks about these issues who hasn't been approached with some kind of conflict in their life as a result of talking about these things, or maybe who has been doxxed or who hasn't lost a friend or a family member. I had more than one friend who, after Charlottesville uh, 2.0, the Unite the Right rally, they weren't even there. But their parents kicked them out of their house and they were still young and talking about these things. I had multiple friends who were just shunned. I had a friend who 
had connection with some with someone pretty high up in the hierarchy of the alt right on her cell phone, and her mother saw the name in her cell phone because she was being a good mother and reading her texts, and uh, she shunned her for that and said she was being driven into a cult. I've had friends say that I'm being driven into a cult. Now you do gain a lot by talking about these things. I feel like I'm a little bit saner because I meet other people who agree with me on certain things and I can talk to I can air my feelings one of the most relieving things in my life was going to Amran and meeting a lot of people who have the same mindset that I have about things but I don't know who anybody whose life was made extremely better by talking about these things if anything they run into a lot of conflict and if you are lucky you meet other people who are all right I got really lucky and then I met my boyfriend who was all right and that was wonderfully enriching for my life but the vast majority of people who are public about their beliefs like this don't approach them with cynicism because they engage in more conflict in their life as a result of it And there's there's also this attitude. I, I think there's this, and this was something that we had thought about talking about. Was I do see this cynicism in the people that are pushing really hard for civic nationalism, because they really aren't open to the arguments or the evidence of race realism and demographics, and they're very much into pushing the the Trump train and and these sorts of things. And I'm actually fully on board with that, but I also reserve a great deal of curiosity for the ideas around race realism and demographics. And they don't, a lot of them don't. And so they really go on the offensive with people who have taken a stand for identitarianism or just for the ideas. Uh, but I will have to remind some of them, I mean, if any of them are watching right now and if any of them get to watching this, that Stefan Molyneux has spoken about uh, Jewish supremacism and Stefan Molyneux has talked about demographics and he's pointed out the different voting trends. And so this isn't, this isn't like totally taboo stuff and we're not here to be flaming, hating Nazis and these sorts of things. We're here to learn and we're here to push back against the tide of insanity that is rising up in our societies. What we're doing takes a lot of courage. And a lot of these people, they they don't want to see that. They do want to play the popularity game, and they do want to be seen with others and have pictures taken, yet they project onto us, and they say, oh, you guys are the ones that are being Nazis, and you are the ones that are being irrational. We're just following the, the evidence, and we're willing to be courageous and go where it takes us. And, and that is going to get us a lot of flack, and that's understood, but it doesn't change that we're willing to do what they're not willing to do. And so that is my challenge to the people that sort of stay in the civic nationalism side of things is, is I really would say, no, I think you guys are the ones that are cynical. You're the ones that gave up on the primacy of your intellect and were unwilling to follow it to where it took you. I think Stefan Molyneux has been a great gateway to the cause for many people. I think he's, um, I think he's obviously someone who he invites on a range of different guests and he has done several talks on race realism. I think his journey has been very interesting. I've sort of charted it from, you know, at the beginning he was very libertarian and he seems to have come more on board with a, a sort of like, you know, European identity politics. And I've even heard him talking about, you know, people of European descent needing to stick together and needing to retain their culture and heritage. And it's quite good to see that because I think it's a, a mark of a developed human being that when they're presented with evidence, they can change their views and go on a political journey. And it, it's very interesting to see him do that. Um, I would really, you know, love to see anyone on this panel uh, be invited on one of his shows. I mean, 
you know, it'd be great to see Tara, Bree, you know, uh, you yourself, Stephen or Peter invited on his show. It would be, um, it would be great, you know, because I'd, I do like it when he treats people with respect. And I must say, one of the things that did impress me with him, especially at the beginning of his sort of uh, career, was how he treated all his guests with quite a bit of respect, despite some of them talking about quite wacky, uh, wacky things. I mean, he had one of these degenerate furries on the other day and was trying to help this individual with uh, you know, their particularly warped uh, sexual desires. And I think you know, the fact that he's willing to reach out to these people and give everyone a chance to explain themselves you know, shows he's quite reasonable. And as I said, I know plenty of people who started off listening to Stefan Molyneux and now listen to you know, the likes of us. So that, that's a good thing. But um, I was wondering if we could move on because we do have quite a lot of questions. People were very active early on. And, you know, I just want to say to the audience, thanks, guys. And I really do appreciate all the questions. And if you don't get your question asked, please do come back and ask them again, um, you know, on Friday or next week, because I do try to answer all serious and non-personal questions. Um, and this one's a really, really good question. And it was one of the first asked this evening. And I think it's something everyone will have a lot to say on. If you could go back in time, should white people have had their empires and should they have engaged in slavery? Now, I think that's a really big question. Um, and it's something I talked about in my book to a degree, but um, you know, would any panel member like to jump in on that straight away? Because it's certainly a big one. Um, I would say whatever to the empires. I have no problem with people wanting to create their own empire, have their own ethno state to have power within their own region, within whichever way they want to achieve that through their own people. Note the slavery simply because we don't need them. We're perfectly capable of doing things ourselves. We can cook our own meals. We can make our own beds. We can build wonderful civilizations with highways and computers and automobiles without slavery. And I've actually read studies that say that slavery was actually a net negative because it took away jobs from people in the South and the North and stopped wages because why would you want to hire somebody you have to pay repeatedly when you can pay a one-time small fee or big fee depending on the price of the slave and not have to pay for that labor ever again. So yeah, naturally note of the slavery, it's immoral. And I kind of see these uh, low paid immigrants as a different kind of slave, especially the ones on these, oh, the name escapes me, the, the H-1B visas, because that's a type of slave. Because if they uh, act out or if they do anything wrong or if they get fired, they have to go back. So they're under the command of their employer no matter what. So yeah, note of the slavery, of course, I'm against it. It's immoral, don't do it. <laughs> but if a country wants to have their own empire or they have with within means of course of not wanting to control other nations i don't really have a problem with that i personally um you know think that our empires have been something which haven't served us well i uh, i'm obviously unashamedly an ethno-nationalist but i don't believe in ethno-nationalism just for us, and I'm certainly not a supremacist. I don't believe that we should be going all over the world, colonizing. I don't believe it benefits us at all. But I will say this about the colonies. 
We gave far more than we ever took. One of the greatest lies ever told is that we went to these poor countries where everyone was happy and they were sat on huge reserves of gold and diamonds and oil and they were just about to do something really good with it all but hadn't yet just about to and then we snatched it away and took their destiny now that's a load of nonsense we went to africa and we gave them irrigation we gave them medicine we gave them the wheel we gave them a written language we gave far more than we took and for what we gave, we have been eternally beaten. And it's one of co colonialism and slavery are two of the three pillars of white guilt, with the third obviously being the Holocaust. And these three pillars of white guilt are used to abuse our young people. And slavery, it's really important to remember that even at the peak of the slave trade, only 1.6% of all Americans owned slaves. And in fact, there are more people living in slavery today than there ever have been at any other point in history. And all of those people are concentrated in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. There are no slaves in white countries. We were the ones that abolished it and poured absolutely billions and, you know, probably billions more of man hours into stopping it. We were the ones who sent troops out around the world to try and stop slavery. So if anything, we should be the ones held up as the most noble of people because we no longer do it and we actively try to stop it. And as somebody pointed out in the chat earlier, there are whole African economies where the rulers of those countries were only rulers and only had wealth because they profited off selling their own people. Yet that doesn't get taught in schools. Yeah, something else that doesn't get taught, of course, is the fact that Muslims were some of the primary slaveholders and traders, and uh, they would um, just, they would completely, um, I can't remember the word, they would turn their slaves into eunuchs so that they couldn't reproduce um, because they didn't want them to be able to rape their women or anything. And, uh, I have to say that worked out a lot better for them because they didn't threaten their uh, demographic structure of their countries that way that we did by keeping slaves and allowing them to breed. Um, anyway, yeah, I think everyone here is anti-slavery. I think everyone here is pretty much anti-colonialism as well because we've obviously seen how destructive it is for us. And uh, I don't, you know, I can't claim to uh know exactly what the motivations of these people were going out doing colonialism but um i think there was definitely a strong narrative about it um you know being a good cause by bringing christianity to the world in order to save them from maternal hell or something um which is kind of understandable um is maybe peter could comment on that Sorry, I didn't catch you there. I was uh, I didn't uh, hear what you said last bit there. Oh, it's okay. I was just talking about the Christian kind of narrative behind colonialism about um, converting people to Christianity and thus freeing them from eternal hell. You know, I mean, from that perspective, I can see how it would be a altruistic motive. Um, though, of course, yeah. it's possible that there are other motives involved as well. Yeah, I think obviously there were several motives. Uh, I mean, obviously, had a Christian motive. I want to go out and evangelize uh, as missionaries, and uh, obviously, there were also 
Yeah, they're merchant motive. Uh, so there were kind of two motives, uh, I think, to colonialism. Um, obviously, uh, the merchant motive I'm not the biggest fan of, but the missionary motive I wouldn't uh, wouldn't say that that was not a bad thing. It would be a good thing. Uh, and uh, but then obviously had the merchants who <laughs> who didn't behave the best there and uh, kind of destroyed uh, a bit for the missionary work as well. They you know they. The natives, they saw these merchants uh, treating them badly, which um, hindered the missionary work. Uh, you know, they thought, oh, here comes the whitey trying to enslave us or whatever. Um, so I think if they were just on the missionary work, I think that would be a very good thing uh, from a Christian perspective. And uh, I mean, that would be good for the native population as well. You know, we, we would have actually helped them, uh, helped them out, you know, because uh, I mean, after all, being right, I I I started using this new new meme, uh, right wing love squads. I think the right should be about uh, about love and uh, you know be the nice guys. You know we're not the bad guys. We are we are the nice guys. Um, being a right winger is being a nice guy. Uh, so I think uh, you know yes, obviously we focus on our countries first. Uh, but if we have anything to spare over, you can send missionary work out and uh, you know and, and that would have and that also helped them. You know that. They've been living in mud huts for, for I don't know how many thousands of years. Uh, meanwhile, with the Europeans came, um, they brought them lots of stuff they wouldn't have otherwise. So that was good for them. Uh, if that's been good for us, well, I think in total it has been good for us, uh, colonialism. But um, yeah, that's just my take on it. Well, I, I've done some reading on the Old West of the United States, learning about the Meriwether and uh, Lewis, Meriwether Clark and Lewis, I forget their names, it's Lewis and Clark. And uh, they were, as they traveled across the West, they encountered, you know, many Native American tribes, Indian tribes. And what they found over and over was that these people were absolutely addicted to drinking. They liked beads. They, they were horse thieves, unbelievable horse thieves. And they, they sort of pouted and wanted handouts. And you'd give them some handouts so that they'd let you pass by on the river, and then they'd want more handouts the next time. So I don't know how you get along with people like that. I think you have to ostracize them. And I think a lot of the colonials, you know, in the 1600s, the 1700s, so on and so forth, they didn't know to practice ostracism at the time. And if it had to be all done again, right, that was the basic prompt, I would just say, how about we practice some ostracism? You don't want to convert people who are of low IQ and poor behavior and poor moral character over to some sort of in-group of yours when they really aren't capable of that. I think you want to ostracize them. So I'm all for exploration. I'm even for commerce and these sorts of things. But I'm also very much strongly for boundaries and ostracism. So, you know, if someone came around to me, I'm trying to, I'm trying to go to Mars or whatever, and someone's blocking my way and going, give me some beads, you know, I'm going to say, well, to hell with you. I just won't take, I won't take this route to Mars next time. And you're just going to have to live with the consequences because I am a good trader and I'm higher IQ. So live with it, buddy. So that, that would be my take. Do it, do it differently. I think that's actually a pretty good uh, analogy of what's happening right now. I mean, it's so sad. You know, people say, you know, oh, we visited the moon in the 1960s. Why have we never made any more progress than that? And I think the reason is uh, because of the welfare state, the massive welfare state, the affirmative action. 
um, and basically the drain on society that Africans and Hispanics are to America. Uh, they average um, negative contribution uh, to to society. Africans and Hispanics, that is a fact. They average negative contribution. They are literally a burden by any standard by which you measure, you know, whether you look at the crime rates, whether you look at the welfare rates, whether you look at the lack of tax they pay, whichever way you look at it, um, they are a huge burden on white Americans. And it's just such a tragedy that white Americans have been burdened in this way. And much of it has been done um, first psychologically and then push through uh, in policy. Who would like to comment on that or should we move on to the next topic? Well, I just wanna say very briefly, if people are miserable and they want to operate at a level of misery, then they can have their areas where they do that, but they will be ostracized and there will be boundaries put around them. So the only time in the United States that the Native Americans really make a stink is if some, there's some sort of land dispute with their reservations. But if you leave them be, and they have their casinos, and they have rampant drinking problems, and they try to they try to suckle away whatever welfare they can. But if you leave their land alone, and you sort of just leave them be in their little areas, they really don't make a big stink. So if people want to sort of reside on lower levels of existence uh, psychologically and want to just have their misery, I say let them have their misery, but hold them off in their own little areas. Problem is that we do create nice societies and from what I've noticed wherever white people go people of indigenous populations always want to follow and always want to guilt trip us into giving them what we have and we're told we're supremacists for having what we have even if we worked our butt off to get there and I talked about this with Mark recently and I think it's there's something to be said for shame we need to bring back shaming people shaming people who are on the welfare state shaming people who get into single motherhood and get knocked up a bunch of times and end up on the welfare state. Shaming people, uh, fathers who don't take care of their children. And that's one thing that I think white people in particular are very scared to do, is to shame these blacks who commit all these crimes. Uh, what is it? They're 13% of the population. They commit up to half of all the crime, and most of that is the men, so that's technically about 6% of the population committing half the crime. I don't want to pander to them through Black Lives Matter. I want to shame them for that. Clean up your act. If you can't assimilate, separate. And there are lots of black separatists who want to see that happen. So I want to see shame brought back. And we see this a lot with um, these accepting of obesity movements, the, the body positivity movement. Uh, I, no fat shaming, no shaming here, no shaming there. Screw that. Shame helps. Shame works. Shame makes people get back into line. And if we shame some of these minority groups who are on welfare. I think we might see them a little bit more motivated to assimilate in a good way. But then again, like I said before, wherever whites go, they create really nice civilized societies. And granted what you were saying a little earlier about Native Americans and how they were always wanting to take advantage, I think that's going to be a repetitive pattern no matter what. No, I agree. And uh, that's a good point to move on to our next question. Now, this is one that I think Peter will like particularly because it's something he often discusses. So uh, here we go. Question. It has often been said that Martin Luther King succeeded in the American civil rights movement because of his contrast with Malcolm X. Do we need a scary dimension of the movement to make us more palatable 
And I will ask that first to obviously Peter, because he's often spoken about things like this. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, by scared dimension, um, no, I would say absolutely not. I think um, I think when we have to position ourselves as being not scary but being friendly, uh, as the optics uh, thing that I've talked so much about before, um, we need to be the kind of uh, the kind of victims, the kind of civil rights movement. Uh, we are not we not to be this scary angry bunch of people we have to be the victims we have to be the friendly guys we have to be the guys that have the moral high ground if you understand what i mean it has to be family friendly uh, everything we do i think uh, i think that's really really important that's 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 what the what a lot of the right wingers you know you have this um, here's the thing you have this uh, this hollywood portrayed uh, style of this right-wing neo-Nazis with skinheads, swastika tattoos, angry guys just marching around with, uh, you know, kicking curb-stomping people <laughs> and so on. That's the, that is the image that the, the left, the cultural Marxists, um, elite, are trying to portray the right as to scare away the normal people, the mainstream, to like make a, try and make us look scary. We absolutely need to not have any of that at all, in my opinion. We need to really take distance from that and make sure that we are the friendly, nice-looking, look look nice, be fit, uh, clean, um, you know, be friendly. Do I, I think something right should do more is do a lot more outreach, you know. Um, start some right-wing soup kitchens. Um, go and pick up rubbish in your local neighborhood. Uh, right-wing rubbish pickers. <laughs> Right-wing love squads. That's the kind of theme that I think we should be going on. I don't know about right-wing love squads. <laughs> Seems kind of like a libertarian thing to do. I was here in a, a podcast just the other day where they actually talked about that and where they were doing a, a open carry trash pickup <laughs> in the libertarians, and it wasn't exactly successful. It didn't change anybody's mind. But I do agree as far as like optics, we need to have positive propaganda. I don't want to see anything negative. I don't want to see any more swastikas. I don't want to see any more Confederate flags. Not because they offend me. I don't really give a crap. I don't see a symbol and get triggered emotionally. But we have to remember that most people out there do. They think about politics with their emotions. And if we're going to evoke that and cater to it, we have to remember to be positive and maybe not so much be the victims, but be sympathetic where people want to sympathize with us because we connect with them on some level, something they can relate to. Like when you hear people talking about diversity quotas, well, white people, they mean you because they're talking about your jobs, they're talking about your kids in schools. Give it to them on a level that the average person in their average life of trying to bring home the bread and butter can relate to. And personally to this question we had, Martin Luther King was not an admirable human being. He was a socialist, he was a philanderer, uh, I've heard it said he was also kind of a communist. He worked with some very unreputable people to get things done. The cities that he marched in are complete trash now because they're run by the blacks and they're just murder hell holes that white people have completely fled. They're almost uninhabitable by anybody who can maintain a job anymore. 
But one thing Martin Luther King was good at was optics. He was positive in his message. Everybody quotes his speech, particularly the conservatives. They love to quote that speech, I have a dream. And that was positive for them. So no, I don't want us to have some big boogeyman. I don't want to give the left a single more opportunity or even the uh, paleocons like Tommy Lahren calling us all white supremacists. I don't want to give them the opportunity to slander us anymore. I want to see us to be, I want to see us extremely positive. And even Hitler talked about that in Mein Kampf where he was talking about if you're going to go for propaganda, make it positive propaganda because that's what people are going to really relate to. Yes. Quoting Hitler might not be the best option. <laughs> okay. Um, Steve, did you have something to add? Sorry, Bri, I didn't mean to be. Can I just chime in? Can I just come in? Just, just quickly. I, I think the point of the question. I've been around. I mean, obviously, been in politics for seventeen years now. Um, and people always ask me, Mark, wouldn't white unity be the best thing? Wouldn't it be great if everyone on the uh, the right sort of came on came in together in one movement and we were all united and i always say to them no that that really wouldn't be good <laughs> i actually want sort of a white unity where 90 to 95 percent of people on the right come together in one movement and that's the good movement and then there's almost like a holding pen which has the other five to ten percent and they're the freakish loons that we don't want and I think what the question was really aimed at was the fact that there are people in our ranks who sort of act in a, a way that doesn't shine a positive light on us. But by keeping them in a separate movement, by distancing ourselves from them, by us being the ones in suits, shirts and ties in, the, uh, in Peter's love squad, whatever that may be, uh, be eventually you know we <laughs> we're uh, we are by definition differentiated by the fact we have separated ourselves from them and i think there is some mileage in that because on my travels over the years i have met people who i wouldn't want in the same party as me because they refuse to moderate in any way they put themselves over in a coarse manner they may present themselves in a slobbish unfit or you know, manner that doesn't sort of befit what we're trying to put over. And I think they were, I think the initial question was trying to ask, if we separate ourselves from them, does that in a way differentiate ourselves and allow us to wash our hands of those people in a public manner? That's a good question. Um, and I, I think you might be right, Mark, simply because we can't just get rid of these people who happen to... Uh, you know, really worship Hitler or whatever it is. Um, you know, there's people who think it's their life's mission to walk around in KKK outfits when everyone's laughing at them because they look like they're wearing a Halloween outfit or something. Um, so yeah, that's that's a tricky one. And I just want to say sorry to Brie. I didn't mean to like call you out like that. It's just, um, I think it's kind of ironic when we, because I, I think that a lot of us, um, we will like nonchalantly quote Hitler. <laughs> and it's just like, we are kind of giving bad optics by doing that. Um, and I know that we all know that that doesn't mean that we like worship Hitler or anything. But, you know, we just see him as someone who, you know, was a, was a successful military strategist, I suppose. Or, well, not actually successful, but more successful than you'd expect anyone else to be in that situation. 
Um, I, I think the point about I think the point Bree was trying to make about Hitler was that at the time he was actually doing what was right. He had the right optics for Germany at the time. He positioned himself correctly to be. Um, you know, embraced by the people. And I think the point that Brie was making was he was the first sort of politician to be a people politician, to be a man that everyone gathered around because he had the correct optics, because people believed in him. And I think what she was trying to say is, at the time, he didn't adopt crankery. And if we, if people who truly think that Hitler was the right thing, maybe they should take a leaf out of his playbook and not adopt crankery and actually embrace what the people want them to. I think that was really her point. But let's not turn this into a foxy boxing match between you two. I think Peter's itching to say something here. The funny thing is, um, when it comes to this optics thing and Hitler that you talked about, uh, have, actually, have you seen this uh, old poster from um, uh, from uh, that, 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 that the Germans put out of uh, the so-called Antermensch? And it's this picture of this fat, bald guy with kind of like a tattoo. He looks like exactly the kind of typical Hollywood neo-Nazi that you see. I think this, this typical Hollywood neo-Nazi, KKK guys, uh, all of these 1488 retards, I would say, I mean, they would probably be one of the first guys to be shot by by the by by the actual by the actual natural socialist back then. Um, so I I don't agree with natural socialism, but if you look at what they did, they had the right optics to win in that in their scenario in that in their situation. They actually did. Um, they actually had the soup kitchens and so on and fed the homeless. Uh, so they had the kind of right optics back then for what they were doing. Uh, not that I, I agree with, not that I agree with natural socialism, but uh, they they did the thing that they did did to win basically, um, and I think the guys that are yeah, it's, it really just um, highlights the importance of optics. I think um, I mean you, you, I don't agree with all all of what they did, uh, but obviously. You can take out something from every every person. You know, Stalin had a few things that was good, that, that he did good. You know, Hitler had a few things that he, he that, that people can learn from as well. Not that I agree with everything, but um, just I'm saying that as a disclaimer in case anyone uh, got this uh, <laughs> uploads a screenshot of this video. Um, so you can learn from things what people did good and uh, cut away the things people did wrong. And I think uh, what uh, you know. They did yeah. the right optics for back then, and um, the, these fourteen-eight-eight guys today—they, uh, I don't know—I think that they're just a creation of this Hollywood, Hollywood uh, elite. I think um, if you look at some of these neo-Nazi organizations, many of them are actually funded by the um, what's it called, ADL, SPLC, whatever they call it in America. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah, good points. Uh, I just want to say. Um... Peter, good points, and I think you framed it very well. You did it in a way that you couldn't be, you know, misquoted or anything, because we know what the lefties are like. Uh, let's hear from Stephen. I know he's been waiting to talk. Well, something I want to add that I think is really important for anyone watching, and it's, wow, I have to humble myself to this time and time again, and that's that we can't divorce ourselves from profitability. We can't divorce ourselves from the marketplace. So we have to help people to help themselves. 
That's the only way any of these ideas are going to gain any traction. We can be as factually correct as we want to be, but if we're not mobilizing this in the marketplace, then it's going to show. And we're going to look like outsiders and we're going to look like losers. So a lot of these people that are, you know, really hardcore, uh, hey, brother, are you 1488? Yeah, I'm 1488, brother. And they have this whole attitude. It's like, what have you done to make people money? Do you know how to make money, make money for you? Do you know how to reach people in your community physically, talk to them in person? And a lot of them just hide behind pseudonyms. They hide behind pictures, profile pictures of whatever, you know, some video game character or whatever this is. And they have no real tangible effect on their society. They have no public facing role. And so we do have to, we do have to integrate economically for whatever ideas we're positing. And this is basic economics, this is basic philosophy. If, you're, if your ideas don't have a place in the marketplace, you'll be outcompeted by other ideas. So I think it's just very, very important. I, that's why I wrote this book, Make Self-Knowledge Great Again. Is it, however you want to come at it as, as a person that's positing ideas in the, in the public sphere, you have to gain traction economically or no one cares. It has to be something that is wrapped up in personal development, self-development. Right. I mean, essentially, we're selling these ideas, right? We're selling a future. We're selling an idea of how, how we want life to be in the future. And we're warning people about how it will be if it's not like that or if we don't make a change. Um, so well, I think... Something I'll just add is, I'm not a rocket scientist. Are you guys a rocket scientist? How are we going to get to the stars? If that's the future of our great society, we have to win the hearts and minds of the most intelligent people. And you right. do that through self-development. So. Yeah, we've got, we've definitely got to be appealing to, you know, the people we want to have on our side. And that's definitely something the little, the little neo-Nazi crew are not very good at. <laughs> and unfortunately, we get lumped in with them. I mean, you know, I see... I see these people just wearing like a, a Trump hat, like li like literally just a random person wearing a Trump hat and they're called a white supremacist. So like, evidently just bagging us all into this, you know, label that none of us even identify with. Um, you know, I think we're going to end a little bit early today because uh, a few of us need to leave earlier. Um, Peter, did you want to say something? Yes, I just want to uh, uh, in part uh, respond to your last comment there also. Um, uh, Sirius had a uh, comment here in the in the chat. He said that uh, uh, they will still call us, uh, no matter how much we denounce it, they will still call us Nazis anyway. I just have an important point to make on that. Um, I think, yes, they will still call you Nazi anyway. Uh, it's stupid to care about if they call you a Nazi or not. That's stupid if you care about that. What's even more stupid is to call yourself a Nazi. <laughs> um, you know, then you basically let them define, uh, then you basically let the left define who you are. If they call you Nazi and say, yeah, I'm a Nazi, if you say that, I'm not saying that uh, so no one takes under context, uh, but um, then they then you basically let, let the left define what you are. You say, no, I'm not a Nazi, but yeah, I don't care if you call me that either, uh, because they're going to call everyone a Nazi, white supremacist, uh, all that bullshit that the, that the left goes on about. Um, so yeah, that, that's just uh, I think an important topic there to point out. You don't cuck, you're not afraid if, if if they call you Nazi because, you know, the, the, that word is being used up so much. But again, don't call yourself a Nazi. That's the, that's even more stupid.
Well, I definitely agree. I think that's very silly, letting the left define you. I think um, Alternative Hypothesis had a very good video about that when he talks about racism. You know, this is a word they just invented, which basically means bad person that they can throw at white people whenever they want to shame them into compliance. Um, so, you know, why even engage with that view of the world? Um, does anyone have any any anything we want to say, or maybe we should just uh, kind of wrap up? Uh, what do you think, um, Steve? Is there anything else you wanted to add? No, it's just let's not divorce ourselves from economics. There's economic reality, and we don't want to have this acad academia mindset where we're off in a, a cloister and an ivory tower. You don't reach anybody that way. So I like this, you know, right wing soup kitchen idea. It's like, you know, I've been looking at this opioid crisis, which was something we didn't get around to today. Um, but I want to do something about that. I want to help people get off these opioids. And I have the skills and ability to do it. So I need to apply myself to that as well, not just to 4chan, but uh, to, to people out in the real world. And, you know, I have in my professional life plenty, but I want to do even more. And I want to make a better example of that so that people can see that more visibly. So that's my, my final thoughts, I guess. Good idea. Um, and Peter, anything else to add? Um, no, I don't think I have much uh, to add. I think I've <laughs> said a lot there. I think uh, my thoughts on on in the last few minutes here. Great, uh, Mark. Any anything else to add? Maybe. Yeah, I I just want to say that you know I talk all the time about the point of what we're doing here, and the point is obviously to save our people. And the only way we're going to save our people is if we come together as a group. We've talked about this more or less every show but that's the point the point is reaching out to other people it's basically reuniting people of, of european descent with their culture heritage and identity but to reach out to these people you can't just go to them and say here's your culture you have to go to them like peter said with a nice approach why not have nationalist soup kitchens. I, I mean, I talked with somebody the other week about the problems young people face when they're coming out of nightclubs. You see all these young girls pouring out of these clubs in a totally terrible state, and they're literally falling all over the place, they're getting sexually abused, they're, they're in a bad situation, they're putting themselves at risk. There are Christian groups going out and helping these girls, there are Christian groups doing soup kitchens. Why can't nationalists do the same? We talk about having good optics. Why can't we be the ones that provide support to these people? Because that's the way we can reach out to them. That's the hook. And once we've got them on the hook, then we can sell them the culture, the traditions, and the heritage. And then we can start to rebuild our communities. Then we can start to get our people to come back together and be a collective. And then when we are that collective, when we're that strong group, then we can stand up against the people trying to destroy us. And that's really my final thoughts, other than the fact that, again, you've been an absolutely wonderful audience, and thank you for all coming out. We're back here again on Friday, and I really appreciate all of your questions, and I hope to see you again then. And the questions that didn't get answered tonight, I'll save them in my Word file, and hopefully we'll get round to them on Friday. So see you all then, guys. Thank you. And let's also hear from Bree as well. Well, I didn't have any closing comments. I think Mark pretty he summed it up pretty well. 
Unless you want us to start saying our information. Sure. Um, all the information of everyone is actually in the description of this video. So uh, you, you're, you're welcome to direct people if you want to in addition to that. Oh, yeah, you can find all my material at briefochet.com. That's my main hub right now where I post absolutely everything. Then I've got my podcast, 27 Crows Radio. You can find that at 27crowsradio.com. Great. And I think, uh, did you add some, did you want to add something, Peter? Yeah, I should just say, to the, uh, if you don't mind, uh, I did an interview with Bray uh, on her channel. So everyone should check that out as well. Um, it's a, it was a good interview, 45 minutes long. Quite detailed. Yes, he did excellent. Ever go check out that interview on my channel. Fantastic. Okay, so um, we covered quite a variety of topics today. Um, if you like this, please give us a thumbs up, share this video with a friend on social media, um, and we're going to see you the same time next. No, we're going to see you the same time on Friday of this channel and Wednesday as well. So Friday, Wednesday is what we're doing. Uh, we'll probably have the same group of people. Uh, maybe we'll have uh, Kaylin join us again. He couldn't join us this week, he told me, because um, he's having internet problems. So thanks to everyone for joining. Um, and I'll catch you guys next time. Bye-bye.